Rabbi David M. Cohn here back with you on our show entitled, We're Almost There, Living with Patience, Perseverance, and Purpose. And the purpose of this show is to illustrate principles of how to develop, how to cultivate perseverance during life's difficult times, during life's challenges. This morning, we're going to have a great guest, an amazing guest, somebody I met just two weeks ago. His name is Jesse Itzler. Jesse just wrote a book called Living with a Seal, 31 Days Training with the Toughest Man on the Planet. Jesse co-founded Marquee Jet, the world's largest prepaid private jet flight card. He also was a he also pioneered the coconut water craze with Zico, which was acquired by the Coca-Cola Company. He's a former rapper and music producer, and he's also a part owner of the NBA's Atlanta Hawks. And if that's not enough, he's married to Spanx founder Sarah Blakely. They have four children. Jesse certainly is somebody who can teach us a little bit about how to persevere and how to live with purpose. But before we get to Jesse, I wanted to speak with the audience today a little bit about graduation. It's graduation season, and it always intrigued me who the various institutions invite to be their graduation speaker. I remember in 1999, when I graduated from the Columbia Law School, so Muhammad Ali, who just passed away this week, Muhammad Ali was actually given an honorary degree, and he was our speaker at graduation. And it's always kind of, I'm sure universities work very hard to try to get to whether they can get a United States president. I know that President Obama has spoken to various graduations. And people are always trying to get a speaker that's compelling, that's going to speak to people, that's going to garner great excitement and interest. Yeshiva University, the community that I am close with, community that an institution I graduated from, both in terms of my rabbinic ordination as well as my undergraduate degree, got my undergraduate degree back in uh, 1994. This year, 2016, they had Robert Kraft, the owner of the New England Patriots, as their commencement uh, address or their commencement speaker. And he's certainly somebody who has persevered. It's interesting. You know, people think of Robert Kraft. They think of an incredibly successful businessman. They don't think about perseverance. But in his brief address in front of that community, he shared the story in 1992, how he purchased the New England Patriots, how that came about. And he shared that he was ready to pay something like he was stretching to pay $115, $117 million. I don't remember the exact amount, but he certainly had stretched himself to be able to you know, purchase the team that he had watched and was a great fan of and was very excited about being the owner of. And the retort that he got back was, okay, they'd sell him the team, but they won $175 million, which in 1992 was an obscene sum of money, and it was something that was really beyond his means at that particular time. And yet he shared with the audience how his dream always had been to own the New England Patriots. And because that had been his dream, he really stretched himself, in essence, and he purchased what was then probably the least valuable franchise in the NFL and transformed it into the juggernaut that we know today with the four Super Bowl rings under the tutelage and, and helm of Tom Brady at quarterback and just have been a team that perpetually is in contention for the Super Bowl. And he shared with the crowd at graduation, how significant it is to follow one's dreams. And sometimes following one's dreams entails taking risks. 
to be patient and to persevere, that's 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 an approach, and it's important to, to be patient. But sometimes it's also important to throw caution to the wind and to really chase one's ambition and to put things out there and to go for it. And that's really what he shared with the audience a few weeks ago when he gave the speech that it was really something that was really a dream for him. It was like beyond reach. It was something that wasn't really a realistic, you know, a purposeful attempt per se at that time. And it was really on a whim in the sense that it was something that he was passionate about. It was something that he just trusted his gut. And although obviously many times he makes calculated business decisions and savvy business decisions and he goes through the spreadsheets, but this was a time when he really, really just followed his gut and listened to what his heart was telling him. And that's something that ultimately helps people persevere very often because at the end of the day, when things are not going our way, we have to hold on to something. And oftentimes, the only thing we're holding on to is that inner voice. There's a voice inside of us that tells us to keep on going, that we believe that we can get to where we want to get to, that we're almost there. Even though everything seemingly is in our way and every obstacle is in our way, I once heard from a close friend that when you have a brick wall, so you have a number of options. You can go around the wall, you can go above the wall, but sometimes you have to go through the wall. And the way to go through a wall is to really believe in oneself and to trust their gut and to cultivate a gut. And that's something that Robert Kraft taught. I'd like to spend most of my time this morning talking about another incredibly impassioned and moving graduation speech. And that was a speech that was given on May 14th. It was given by Sheryl Sandberg, the chief operating officer of Facebook. And she's renowned uh, for her book, Leaning In, Lean In, for women in the workplace, women in the workforce. She's obviously known uh, for other accomplishments as well. She worked in the United States Treasury, certainly an incredibly capable woman. And she spoke at the Berkeley, Cal Berkeley graduation. And her words were truly awe-inspiring and were really very much on the mark with the issue that we're addressing in our show. And that is she shared with about 20,000 people who were, who were in attendance that the tragedy that she recently suffered with the loss of her husband, Dave, a little over a year ago, left an indelible mark and imprint on her life and certainly left her in a state of profound sadness and left her answering the, asking the question, what do I do next? Right? And she shared with the graduates that life is not just about what I achieve, but also how I survive when things are not exactly going my way. She talked about the ability to learn and grow from tragedy and how to cultivate and to develop perseverance or what she refers to as resilience. Because ultimately, there's no fixed amount of resilience, says Sheryl Sandberg. Cheryl says it's a muscle. It's something that must be exercised. It's something that must be honed. It's something that must be cultivated. And she shared with the audience something incredible. She said that oftentimes in life, option A isn't available. And we have to really, um, I'm doctoring her language because I don't like to use such language, but we have to, we have to really embrace, shall we say we have to embrace. She said we have to kick the something out of something, but we have to embrace option B which reminded me actually of something that I mentioned in my book, We're Almost There. I have a chapter where I talk about the birth of my special needs son. And I reference an amazing poem written by Emily Pearl Kingsley, which is well known in the special needs universe and community, where she entitles her poem, Welcome to Holland. And she talks about 
in essence, that you're preparing a trip to Italy and you have all the guidebooks and you're all excited and that's where you were going. And all of a sudden, you get off the plane and they say, welcome to Holland. And Holland isn't as dramatic or as exciting as Italy is. I've, I've been to Holland, I've been to Italy, enjoyed both. But uh, Holland certainly doesn't have all of the uh, fanfare that Italy does, doesn't have the Michelangelo's, doesn't have uh, the gondolas, doesn't have uh, certain things. And Holland, in essence, is option B. It's the option that we're confronted with many times in life. And she talks about how Holland really isn't so bad. And one has to readjust their sights, and one has to readjust their expectations. And what Cheryl Sandberg shared with the graduates of Cal Berkeley was that many times in life, today, that day of their graduation, they're on top of the world. But ultimately, many times in life, we're not on top of the world, and things don't go exactly the way we plan them or exactly the way we want them. And we find ourselves staring in the face of option B. And we're staring in the face of option B. The question is, how do we deal that? How do we deal with that? How do we build the resilience to deal with option B? She actually quotes her rabbi, which I found fascinating, uh, being a rabbi myself. I don't think uh, Cheryl is... Uh, particularly religious, religiously observant, from what I know. But of course, uh, in her time of, of suffering, she turned for religious guidance. And being Jewish, she turned to her rabbi. And she quotes from her rabbi that the rabbi instructed her an amazing insight. Her rabbi said that using a, a play on the title of her book, Lean In, or Leaning In, the rabbi said to her, Cheryl, you need to lean into the suck. You need to lean into the suck, which is, which is a, fa a fascinating mantra, right? A lot of times in life, we try to run away from the suck. We don't want to deal with what's difficult. We might want to stay in bed, hide under the covers, <coughs> just avoid having to persevere and deal with what we don't want to confront. And the advice that she claims was great advice, which is to really be present, be in the moment, which is parenthetically another section of my book, all about carpe diem, seizing the day, one has to lean into the suck. And she quotes from the well-known psychologist who is her friend from University of Pennsylvania, Adam Grant, that Adam actually gave her the tool, the idea that one has to have gratitude in the sense that things could be worse. Now, this is an interesting perspective because being a therapist myself, in my training, I was taught that you want to be very careful. You don't want to ever belittle the feelings of the person sitting in front of you. A person could be suffering. I always think of this amazing contrast. One of my mentors told me about a case, a scenario where he had a patient who was dying of cancer, was given a diagnosis of six months to live, and then subsequent, immediately after that patient, he had a patient who was crying over the reality that he only made $500,000 this past year as opposed to a million dollars. And his inner urge was to give, to give a sharp rebuke to this client and say, you know who was just in here before you? You're complaining about making only $500,000 a year? But he warned us and cautioned us that that would be a very bad therapeutic technique because ultimately the good therapist is there as a present with the patient where they are and is able to validate the feelings that they're suffering. And it could very well be that the pain and anguish of the individual who only made a half a million dollars who lost half of his salary could be greater, as, as far-fetched and counterintuitive as it thinks, as we may think it sounds, it's possible that 
that that person could actually be in greater pain than the person who has six months to live. It's all a question of our perspective, our attitude, our faith, our perseverance, how we experience bad news. So I thought this was very profound, but it's interesting to me, it's striking to me that Adam Grant, who was such a renowned psychologist, actually adopted a tactic and told Cheryl in her period of mourning that it is helpful to think how things could be worse, how her husband Dave, who died from a cardiac arrhythmia, could have been driving his car with the children in the back seat when he experienced the episode, rather than being on an exercise bike on vacation where he was by himself, where although tragically he, of course, met his demise, but thankfully nobody else was injured or hurt. And she actually shared that this technique of having gratitude and recognizing that things could always be worse is actually, she found it to be helpful in terms of cultivating gratitude. So I was incredibly inspired because Shel Sandberg, as she acknowledges herself as somebody who is uniquely situated in the sense that many people who lose their husbands at an early age have severe or suffer from financial challenges, which she thankfully doesn't have to deal with. But still, that she's able to make herself vulnerable, to come at such a public forum. This is the first time she publicly spoke about the experience of what it meant for her to basically have everything, to have an amazing life, to have a husband, to have children, and to have an incredible career that excites her, as she comments, to uh, gives her permission to be on Facebook and to really uh, spend her entire day on Facebook. That's her job, in essence. So this is an incredibly accomplished person, the top of the world, and in a moment, basically suffered an unimaginable loss and how she has kind of cultivated and dealt with that and how she has cultivated resilience and she shares in great I encourage you to, to, to Google it to look up the full speech to watch it online to see I mean one of the most incredible speeches I ever saw was uh, you know the amazing speech by the CEO of, of, of Apple when he spoke at uh, at, uh, at Stanford, right? Unfortunately, he also uh, passed away. But it, it's really, uh, you know, Steve Jobs. It's an incredible thing. You know, the speech he gave at Stanford, many people watched it as well. He talked about dealing with illness. And when these famous people talk about making themselves vulnerable, we all look up to them. And we all kind of, you know, admire the lives they have. And on some level, maybe there's a jealousy of what they have. It's so interesting when they humanize themselves and they make themselves vulnerable and share with us their pain and their struggles, and everybody's human, and everybody deals with human emotions of loss and disappointment and how to cultivate resilience is an incredible message from people that really have been so successful in other realms. Because these tools, we need these tools really in every essence, every aspect of the life and the world in which we live. So I want to just, that was really my opening remarks, my opening salvo. And now we're going to hear from our special guest, Jesse Itzler, who lived with a, a Navy SEAL for 31 days, invited the toughest man on the planet to live with him, to train him, to teach him how to persevere and how to live with regained focus and purpose. So I think speaking to Jesse also will give us uh, great insight onto these principles. I am 
the possibility, laughter and smiles. When I'm with you, I'm soaring high and free. When you're in my world, I believe in me. I look into your eyes and see that I can be stronger, I can be braver, I can be, I can be anything, anything I wanna be. Oh, anything I wanna be. I have the power, I have the courage. I am a hero. Everything I need is inside of me. Is inside of me. So we're back with Jesse Itzler, the author of Living with the Seal, 31 Days Training with the Toughest Man on the Planet. I had the good fortune of meeting Jesse two weeks ago at the Jewish Book Club event. He really stood out amongst many amazing authors, really kind of grabbed the attention of all of us in attendance with his dynamism, with his charisma, and with his resume. Jesse, I saw that you grew up in Roslyn, New York. I actually grew up myself in West Hempstead, New York, on Long Island, not far from Roslyn. Can you tell us a little bit about your family, about your childhood, siblings, etc.? Sure. Well, first of all, good to know that we were neighbors. <laughs> uh, I was the youngest of four, grew up in Roslyn. 
Uh, I'm 40, almost 48 years old, so it was a different different era then than it was than it is now. Um, and then, but I had a great, you know, great childhood. I went to school at American University in Washington D.C. And then went uh, went right to the pros, as, as they say, uh, in 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 business and in in adventure. What were your What were some of your aspirations growing up? Let's say when you were, you know, when you were in high school, when you were younger. Kind of, where did you see yourself going in life? Well, you know what? The funny thing is, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. My my parents gave me a great gift when I was young, and that was freedom. Mm-hmm. They allowed me to explore and try different things, and encouraged me to, um, you know, just follow my heart and passion. So uh, I never really. I never really had, like, oh, I wanted to be a lawyer, I wanted to be a, a doctor or anything like that. I just tried different things. And that was everything from breakdancing to pre-law. I mean, everything. And that became, you know, I'm 48 years old now. I'm still trying to figure out what I want to do with myself <laughs> uh, when I grow up. Uh, but that was a really good, it was a really good gift for me, you know, because I wasn't focused on one thing that I burnt out of. Uh-huh. It, it gave me exposure to a lot of different kinds of people, a lot of different kinds of um, opportunities, and um, and just kind of led to a really well-rounded, um, experiential childhood. That sounds uh, that sounds great. It's a great lesson for many parents out there. I'm curious, as a co-founder of, of Marquee Jet, the world's largest prepaid private jet flight card, and being involved, of course, pioneering the coconut water craze with Zico, where do you, what do you think inspires your ideas? You come up with incredibly creative, successful ideas, and I know you're working now on additional things. Where does your creative drive come from? Where do you get these ideas from? <coughs> I think now they probably call it ADD. When I was young, they probably called it enthusiasm. Uh-huh. Um, I don't know. I just, you know, I keep my eyes, my eyes wide open. I like to say that I have a big front mirror, front windshield. Um, and when I find something that I, lo- that I like or I enjoy or I'm interested in, I dive into it, you know, full blast right away. And not just things, people. If I see someone that's interesting, um or I read about someone that's inspiring or motivating, I just kind of, I'm not scared to cold call that person. That's how a lot of things have happened to my life, through cold calling people, through just standing in front of an office until someone I want to meet walks out. Really? Um, I've never been scared to uh, to swing the bat. Uh-huh. And um, so a lot of it is no real secret other than you know, getting over the fear of embarrassment and the fear of failure. So just not being scared to pick up a phone and, and call someone and say, hey, I have an idea, or hey, I think this would be a good fit. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's been a, that also has been a big theme in my life. That, that's, that's great. I, I heard once uh, that the word fear, F-E-A-R, stands for false evidence appearing real. And that very much sounds like what you're saying, that there's no reason to be afraid. Have you ever been afraid in your life? Can you think of a time when you really were afraid? I was. I mean, as a kid, I, I was, I was, I wouldn't say I was a scaredy cat, but I was definitely, you know, scared of being embarrassed, you know? And um, as I said, you know, I think one of the best blessings you can give yourself is getting over that fear of embarrassment because you become completely liberated and it opens up a new world. When you're not scared to take a chance, when you're not scared to take risks, that's when you get the girl. That's when you get the deal. That's when you, great things happen. 
when you're when you're okay stepping out of your comfort zone. And so only, in my opinion, through my experiences and watching others, to um, only to get outside of your comfort zone and push your limits, you really experience like greatness or feel the most alive. At least for me, I feel the most alive when I get out of my comfort zone. Now, how do you how do you how do you do that? I mean, how do you tell people? How do you get people? Everybody's afraid. Everybody is uncomfortable putting themselves out there. Everybody's afraid of being embarrassed. I mean, I hear the recipe you're saying that that's the secret to success. But how do you overcome the fear? So there's no there's no silver bullet. You can't magically will it in. It's by taking actions. It's by getting uncomfortable mm-hmm. constantly and consistently daily. And that doesn't have to be like, okay, I'm going to, you know, it could just be I'm doing 10 push-ups. That's my limit. I'm going to do 11. I'm going to take a cold shower. It could be anything that just makes you create a pattern in your brain and an environment in your brain that says when things get hard, Mm -hmm. I'm not going to say I quit. I'm going to say let's get it on, you know? So you want to create, you just want to do things that you just don't want to do. Like, I'm not really in the mood to, to walk to go for a walk today. Well, you have to. You know, like, right. you got, you, if you don't do it, you're telling yourself, oh, you know what, it's okay, I didn't want to exercise today, so I'm just not going to do it, I'll do it tomorrow. But that just creates an environment for other things to enter your head and say, yeah, I'll just do it tomorrow. I'll just review that document tomorrow. Right. And as opposed to just saying, like, I'm going to do it. So, you know, my advice is, if you're going to go for the walk, Go for the walk. Go for the walk when it's raining. Mm. Go for the walk when it's cold. Make it memorable. You know? <laughs> yeah. And, you know, that's what my just that's what my book was about. You know, I, I wrote I lived with a Navy SEAL for thirty one days. Right. I met this fellow at a race. Um he had broken he was two hundred and eighty pounds. He had broken all the bones in his in both of his feet because he weighed so much, he ran 70 miles, and I watched this guy get up with broken feet, basically duct tape his feet together, and run another 30 miles to get to 100 miles. And I was so inspired by his drive, like what makes a guy like this tick, that I did just what I talked about a minute ago, I cold called, I looked him up, I learned he was a Navy SEAL, I cold called him, I flew out to meet him, and five minutes into our conversation, I decided to ask him to come live with me because I wanted that drive, whatever got him out of that chair to run the extra 30 miles. I wanted that in all the buckets of my life. So I, I asked him to come live with me, and I, I ended up writing this book called Living with a Seal mm-hmm. about our journey. But the, the, the key takeaways from my experience with him and, like, you know, the lessons I learned living with this Navy SEAL and how I apply it was about... This theme around getting uncomfortable, this theme around doing things you don't want to do mm-hmm. to have a better, more fulfilled life. Amazing. And that could be, it could be spiritually, it could be, you know, physically, it could be anything. But that was, the, that was my big takeaway, mm-hmm. was the consistency of doing things that you might not want to do to get better. Jesse, was writing the book itself something that you found uncomfortable? Is that an example of, of you kind of getting out of your getting out of your normal space, or writing the book came easy for you? Well, you know, um, the book started as a blog. It was very natural. It felt it it it, it felt 
like it was in my zone, but putting it out was very uncomfortable because I didn't know how people would react. You know, all of a sudden, you're out, you have a publisher, you're doing where I met you, you're doing lectures, and you're out there promoting this book, and now tens of thousands of people are reading this book and getting and, and entering your life and your world and your family and how you think, and that was very uncomfortable for me. I didn't want to, you know, you don't, you want to be liked. You don't know how people are going to be react. There's some language in there. You just don't know. So that was uncomfortable for me, but it wasn't enough to stop me from putting out the book. The fear of how people would, you know, accept or reject the book wasn't enough for me to stop me. And I'm glad that it did because then it would have never came out and it's been a great part of my life jigsaw puzzle. You know, this book has been a really important piece of my jigsaw puzzle. So I'm glad that, the, that I didn't let the fear of the unknown stop me from doing it. And that's great. And I'm sure it's had a profound impact on, on thousands of people, not hundreds of thousands of people who have heard you speak and are going to hear you speak and have read your book. Can you tell us, I'm curious, just uh, if you would name maybe two or three of your greatest mentors or role models. We talk often on the show about how we talk about persevering and living with patience, perseverance, and purpose, which is actually the title of my book. And we often say that people who have mentors, people who have role models, often can use that picture to help motivate them and inspire them, particularly in the difficult moments when we have the choice to make if we should or shouldn't push on. So can you share with us maybe who are two or three of your greatest role models or mentors that have helped you catapult yourself forward? Yeah, well, I mean, I, yeah, sure. I, I didn't have a ton. Uh, I grew up in a, in a loving family. My parents are still married 65 years. Wow. So both of, my, both of my parents were incredible role models because of how they prioritize things mm-hmm. and how they and how and just how they their whole concept of family was, was was just unbelievable and so they were I had two great role models in my parents mm-hmm. I also had a great community I lived in a town that was support, very supportive um, having moved now and having traveled a little bit I realized how important that community was to me. Mm-hmm. So that was a really good thing to live in, just a close-knit, great, my high school friends are still my closest friends. So that, that was a really great thing. And in the business world, you know, I read a book called Fish for Life, written by a guy named Harvey Diamond okay. uh, in 1991 that really changed my life because it changed my relationship with food and how, and how I kind of um, just had a real big impact on my on my future energy mm-hmm. and how I I have a lot of energy and this yeah, I saw, really I saw that when I met you you got a lot of energy <laughs> I actually I actually cold called the author because I was like so flipped out on like how this book changed me mm-hmm. that 15 years more about 20 years after I read the book I called the author I'm like I read your book nine times really? I got to meet you food of Sarasota and became good friends with this guy Harvey Diamond great guy. So he's become a mentor without even really realizing it. And then along the way in business, I've had quite a few, you know, people that I've looked up to and learned from. Um, so, you know, I've been fortunate. I've been fortunate in that regard. If I, if I find someone that I think can really help me in an unusual way, not in like, oh, I could read about that and I get it, but someone I could really, you know, um, learn from, I, I try to track them track them down. 
Do you find that people sometimes aren't responsive to your cold calling? Have you ever had situations where you've been inspired by somebody, you got to meet this guy, and you try to reach them, and they just blow you off? Um, of course, of course. But, you know, there's a lot, I find also that there's a big willingness for people to help each other. Mm-hmm. Um, now, right now, I get calls a lot because I, I talk about that, and that's been something that worked for me. And now I have four kids under seven. I'm married. I live in Atlanta. It's a lot more. It's a lot. It's very difficult for me now to respond to that kind of stuff. So I've been on. I've been on both ends of it, and I don't want to speak with a forked tongue. Like, oh, well, you you have you cold called people, and now people cold call you, and you. But it's, it's it's very difficult. But yeah, I've had plenty of no's and no responses. But you know, um, as expected. But also plenty of people that have that have helped. You know, and today, in today's world with social media, mm-hmm. documentaries, books, um, um, TED Talks and all this stuff, you can have a reality, a, a virtual mentor. You can have a mentor that's not even, doesn't even know you exist. Right. <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure Elon Musk is a mentor to tens of thousands of, hundreds of thousands of people that he doesn't even know exist. Right. So you can have a virtual mentor, right. you know, just by studying the habits of super effective and, and highly efficient cool. people. Have you ever met Elon Musk? I have. And how, how did that come about? I mean, he is, he, I think he will go down as one of the great minds, certainly of our generation. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've had, the, I've had, the, I have had the privilege of meeting him a couple of times and, you know, it was, it was incredible. Good. And I'll last a minute or two. Let me just uh, ask you about, uh, you know, you mentioned when, when I met you, you mentioned your wife. You have a pretty famous wife. What's it like to be married to somebody who's uh, maybe more well-known than you are? Well, my wife's an entrepreneur. She invented a product called Spanx. I'm sure a lot of the women listeners uh, have heard of the product. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, uh, it's great. I, have, I have probably have the best board of advisors every night sitting down at the dinner table between her and my and my seven-year-old son uh-huh. uh i get all the answers i need that's that's that sounds uh that sounds great and sounds incredibly inspiring jesse you are an incredibly inspiring person i'm so glad that our paths crossed do you want to just tell the listeners just how to get your book or anything other and information that would be helpful to people to get a hold of the inspiration that you have sure i appreciate it and i'm, I'm glad we had the chance to meet as well uh you can follow me on social media. I'm at the number 100 mile man on Instagram and Twitter and all that stuff. And the book is called Living with a Seal, 31 Days with the Toughest Man on the Planet. And that book is available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, anywhere books are sold. And the audio version is on iTunes. Awesome. Jesse, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. And I wish you continued oh, success in all your different endeavors. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much. Okay. Be well. Take care. Bye. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay. So that was Jesse Itzler. Living with the author of Living with a Seal, really a fascinating guy. Like I was at this event, there were about 300 authors. We all had to make two-minute pitches about our books, 
And this guy, like, he just captivated the room. I was, like, thinking in my head, maybe I should walk in front of the podium, like a kind of a tactic that I've used from my pulpit over the years. But I was a little hesitant in that forum to do it. And sure enough, Jesse Itzler gets up there. He basically does away with the, with the pulpit in front of him, and he basically captivated the room. And something that we heard from him over and over and over again, which is an incredibly inspiring idea, is not to be afraid. Cold call people. Find people that are going to be mentors that can be, they could be virtual mentors, but they're going to motivate you to help achieve in life. Really, we live in an amazing world with LinkedIn and with social media. We can really connect with almost anybody we want. If we're patient and we're persistent and we have a purpose why we're calling them, we really can, we can accomplish great things. Look at this Jesse Itzler, you know, young man, grew up, Jewish boy, Roslyn, New York has a pretty impressive uh, net worth today and has founded multiple initiatives and companies and done great things. And what I think is so inspiring is that he's really not hoarding it for himself. He really wants to share with others and to write a book and to go speak. He's obviously uh, somebody who, you know, who doesn't need to do something like this, and yet he feels so strongly about what's helped him, what's catapulted him forward, and this is kind of his way of, as you heard, he's a pretty busy guy, but this is how he pays it back and, and pushes forward. So as we ran out today's show, it's important just to understand and recognize it's a season of graduations, and it's a time to transition and to move on to new stages of life. It's always important to look to inspiring personalities, people like Sheryl Sandberg, people like Jesse Itzler, and I hope that you'll continue to listen to our program. And if you haven't yet, please go to my website, www.rabbidovidmcone.com. Get a hold of my new book, We're Almost There, Living with Patience, Perseverance, and Purpose. And we will continue to have this biweekly program where we're going to interview fascinating personalities. So far, we've had Greg Zuckerman from The Wall Street Journal. We've had Jesse Itzler, who happens to also, parenthetically, be a co-owner of the Atlanta Hawks basketball team, NBA team, with his wife, Sarah Blakely, and, entire, and Grant Hill. Our first two shows have been very sports-oriented, but we're going we're gonna to branch out to other fields and other disciplines as well. So no worries. There's something for everybody. And I thank you all for listening. This is Rabbi David M. Cohn. Have a great day. Thank you.